Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Botter Meinhof. We talk about uh, the Botter Meinhof gang, the Red Army faction, left wing urban German terrorism of the 1970s, student radicalism, and other related ephemera. It's the only podcast devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Botter Meinhof gang. And uh, it is mid November. 19, not 19, been November 2011. Um, and uh, I wanted to talk today, actually, before I talk about that, I wanted to mention if you're visiting my website, I uh, past uh, week I put up a good, I don't know, 150, 200 articles, historical English language articles that that chronicled the, the Bader Meinhof era from their first from the very beginnings um um there's actually a new york times article that's almost funny and ironic this little article and the headline is tiny um anarchist group vows uh to destroy the um west german state or something it's it's really funny because it's so smug um and i think in retrospect they probably regretted being so smug um but anyway, um, I put up tons and tons of these articles, so they're there for your pleasure. I did it for you, my listeners. Um, so you go, go to my resources section, go to the um, uh, English language uh, resources, source documents, and they're, they're there. There's hundreds of them. They're really interesting. But a lot of them are from the New York Times, or they're AP articles or UPI articles, and it's it really uh, gives you a heck of a flavor of the Times. Um, anyway, today I, w- I was going to talk about another New York Times article, one that appeared in today's, um, which is November 12th, um, edition of the New York Times um, Sunday Magazine, and it's called... Uh, Gilad Shalit uh, and the rising price of an Israeli life, and it's it's an astonishing article, and it is all about um, the recent um, uh, the recent um, I don't know if you call it an incident, but the recent efforts in Israel to secure the release of of a um, of a young Israeli soldier that was kidnapped five years ago um, by Palestinians and held secretly captive and um, and for and he was captive for obviously years and finally just a, a month or so ago um, the Israelis finally agreed to, um, to to release him in exchange for 1026 Palestinian prisoners um, many of them who had maimed and killed Israelis many of them that were clearly you could call terrorists um, it's it's this amazing article because it fully kind of explores um, how Israel, how its president Shimon Peres and and uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu could sign off on this deal because we all know Israel is 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 you know they're the badasses they're the ones that that don't back down from anything that are that are first strike type people how how they could do this and how could 80% of the Israeli population support this. Um, it, it's incredible. It's, it's a really terrific article explaining how, um, how, how a certain amount of society can um, sort of back you in a corner to making decisions like this and, and, and so forth. And anyway, the reason I bring it up is because it, it um, as with many things, the Bader-Meinhof era, um, 
offers examples that are that are that provide object lessons to consider. Um, and in this case, it was the the June second movement that led the way. This is that group that well, they tried to kill my dad and my mom. Um, you can read more about that on my website, and there's some podcasts I've done about that as well. But this was this um, companion group, I guess you could call them, of the Red Army Faction Bader Meinhof gang that was active mostly in Berlin. And in 1975, many of their leaders were in prison, and they decided they were going to try and kidnap somebody to secure the release of their imprisoned leaders. Um, so on February 27th, in West Berlin, they kidnapped Peter Lorenz, who was the the conservative candidate for the mayor of Berlin in the upcoming elections, which was going to be held, I think, about a week from them. Um, so he was driving to work. He was being driven to work. And his Mercedes, it was blocked by a truck. And then um, a little Fiat came and rammed his car. And then they beat up his driver. And then they grabbed him, put him in a waiting automobile. And um, so later that day, the, the, the uh, mayor of Berlin, who was actually running against him in the campaign, but they were very good friends, uh, they, they put up a reward of $44,000 for the, you know, try, to try and track him down. Um, and they also announced that we're going to cease all campaignings in, this, uh, in the election, but they didn't cancel the election. Um, so anyway, the next day, a Polaroid arrived with Peter Lorenz's picture and saying he's a prisoner of the June 2nd movement, and they were demanding the release of uh, six terrorists. Now, one of them was in the Bader Meinhof group. This was Horst Mahler, who was, I guess you could almost call him the founder of the Bader Meinhof group, um, but he was captured early on, and five members of the June 2nd movement. And then they attached a note to it that said, that was directed specifically to the Red Army faction Bader Meinhof group, and it said to our uh, RAF comrades in jail, we'd like to get more of you out, but at our present strength, we're not in any position to do it. And when you think about it, this was pretty canny because Botter, Meinhof, Enslin, all these other imprisoned leaders of the Red Army faction at the time, they were accused of murder, brutal murders. And it would have been a lot harder for the German authorities to consider releasing one of them. And, um, but, 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 but but anyway, so what this what this actually ended up becoming, though, it was it was sort of this is emblematic of what became the key strategy of all left wing terrorists throughout much of the 70s, because at a certain point they stopped fighting their revolution and pretty much they spent all of their time trying to get their leaders out of jail. So from 1970 to 72, the Bader Meinhof group, that's all they were doing was was blowing people up, trying to kickstart their revolution. And after that, for the next five years, pretty much all of their energies were, were towards getting their leaders out of prison. Um, but anyway, so in this case with Lorenz, after about a week, the authorities, they gave in. They said, okay, we're going to release these terrorists. They, they uh, got a, a Boeing 747. The former mayor of Berlin, a, a gentleman named Pastor Heinrich Alberts, um, he, uh, he agreed to go with these released terrorists and they flew them to South Yemen. Although Horst Mahler did decide he didn't want to go. The others went. And, um, and once they were, um, released in Yemen, um, Lorenz was released unharmed in Berlin. So when it was over, everybody breathed a sigh of relief. They're all thinking, wow, some kind of mid-level, less than lethal terrorists were released. Lorenz is safe. Um, it was an awful, awful choice, but we just need to move on. So, but, but what happened? What, what did that do? What was the blowback from that decision?
Well, let's look what was going on at the Red Army faction at the time. For them, this, this was an incredible object lesson. This, the absolute lesson that they learned from this was that the German authorities were definitely going to be willing to negotiate for their release. They just needed to maybe up the ante, but they're clearly willing to negotiate. So within six weeks, members of what, what is often called the, the second generation of the Red Army faction, these were the folks that were, that were outside and not imprisoned, uh, many of them literally former mental patients um, from this group called the Socialist Patients Collective, they took over the German embassy in, St in Stockholm. And their goal was just simply to get all the Bader-Meinhof um, leadership out of prison. And even before they began nego negotiating, they killed the embassy's uh, military attache, and then they announced, um, you know, start meeting our demands or we're going to start killing hostages one every single hour. And one hour in, they killed the hostage. Um, and then for nobody's totally certain why or what happened, but one of the terrorist bombs went off um, prematurely, and then the police stormed it, and, and they captured and killed, um, or captured most of and and killed one of the terrorists. Another one died um, the next day. Um, so uh, so they didn't they didn't accomplish what they wanted, but what they wanted was to you know, hold people hostage in exchange for the release of their of their comrades. So in 1977, they tried it again. RAF members tried to kidnap Jurgen Ponto, who was the head of the Dresdner Bank. They messed up. They killed him instead. Um, but a few months later in September, um, they did succeed in kidnapping um, a man named Hans Martin Schleier, who was at the time probably Germany's most recognizable industrialist. He was con he was a, a board member of Mercedes, and he was the head of the Manufacturers Association. He was, you know, it was sort of in a way that tech people are notable today, like you would recognize Steve Jobs or or um, or Mark Zuckerberg. That's what he was because industrialists were the, the the prominent people, and and he was very well known and very prominent. They killed four people. Uh, in, a, in a, three police officers and his driver in an effort to get Schleier and they kidnapped him. And what was their demand for their release? Uh, they demand the demand for the release of Schleier, all of the leadership of the Bader-Meinhof group. So the police, this time, unlike the, the thing in, um, in, in Stockholm, they realized we can't just start demanding it and, and assuming this is going to happen within several hours. So it drug on for a month. And they, um, they would periodically release um, videos of him, um, um, uh, of, of Schleier standing in front of a, a sign that said prisoner of the RAF. And, and um, the German government started actually talking with the terrorists saying, okay, we may be releasing you. What country do you want to go to? It's not actually clear whether they were going to follow through on this, but they were certainly going through a lot of motions. There was a lot of negotiations and, and, um, and stuff going on behind the scenes. And about a month or so into this ordeal, um, Palestinian terrorists actually hijacked a Lufthansa, a German airplane, with the help of Bader-Meinhof group people. And what was their demands? Well, among their primary demands were the release of the Bader-Meinhof prisoners. 
It was yet another kidnapping where we were going to hold people in exchange for the release of the of these prisoners. Now we all know how that ended up. If you've um, seen or visited my site at all or listened to my podcast, you'll know that ultimately um, German commandos stormed this plane in um, in Mogadishu and released all of the uh, hostages, killing all of the terrorists except for one. And um, the Red Ar- the Re- the Meinhof leadership in prison, which is Gudrunenzla and Andreas Bader, Jan Karl Raspa, um, killed themselves or supposedly killed themselves um, in prison upon hearing about this news and, and, and ended that because they realized at that point, well, we're not getting out of prison. It's just, it's over. And then a few days later, the um, Red Army faction murdered Hans Martin Schleier, um, or as they put it, ended his miserable life. Um, so if um, so, so when you look at it, you, you realize that, wow, so this thing that they did, um, that the German government did, which was to release Lorenz, I mean, sorry, release these, uh, these uh, ultimately, I think it was five kind of mid-level terrorists, um, um, in exchange for saving the life of Lorenz, what happened is it inspired madness over the next two years that ended up um, leading to the immediate deaths of about eight different people, and um, and certainly just 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 the terrors terrorization of just hundreds of people. Um, and then what happened to these terrorists that got released? Well, among the terrorists that were released, these people that, that, that they felt that they could release. One was Gabby Crocher Tideman. So she's released in, um, I think it was, uh, March of, uh, of, um, of 1975. Well, within, um, six months or so, she had joined up with Carlos the Jackal and helped take over the OPEC oil ministers meeting in Vienna. She killed two people in that raid. Um, a couple years later, Rolf Heisler, who was also one of those released, shot and killed two uh, Dutch customs officers. And Verena Becker, who was part of the, um, who, who was also released in 1977, was part of the commando unit that um, killed federal prosecutor Siegfried Bubak in Germany. Um, and she wasn't convicted of that crime, but ultimately the case was reopened and she was arrested literally just a year ago, year and a half ago. And, um, she's currently on trial for his murder. So these people that were released because they felt comfortable releasing him in the end, directly or indirectly were responsible for the death of, of, um, four other people. Um, you know, it, it, for me, obviously, you can sense where I'm going with this. For me, it was just it, this this exchange was such a disaster on so many levels because it led to so many other deaths and it and it sent such a terrible, terrible message. By the same token, it's hard to imagine making any other decision at the time. I mean, they the the the, the June second movement really played it very well. They were they did not pick people that had been convicted of of deadly force. They, 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 um, it seemed appropriate. I mean, it just, it, and, and, and there was a lot of pressure on them to do it. And, and that's what made this, um, this article in the New York times that I encourage you guys all to read. I'll probably put a link to it on my homepage because it really gives you a sense of how much incredible pressure can be put on governments to make a decision like this. Because 
like the Israeli people, they have, they're some of the most intense people in the world. They, there is no love lost for Palestinians, yet 80% of them said, yeah, we want you to release a thousand people, including people that have killed other Israeli citizens and people that we think probably will go on and kill other Israeli citizens just so you can release this one person. I mean, that's an incredible amount uh, that, that's an amazing thing, and and that people could come to that conclusion. But after five years of internalizing him and seeing his, seeing um, uh, Gilad Shalit's picture on the walls, and people talking about him, and and um, people not wanting to forget about his case, it just it just changes your perceptions. It's just it's just an incredible dynamic, and it just shows that it's it's not an equal negotiation. The uh, you know, when you have somebody in, um, in uh, as uh, when you're holding somebody hostage, you you utterly change the game. Things that people could not possibly imagine doing, they start imagine doing if you're if you're good at it. If they cannot figure out where this person is, it gets to a certain point where they just start feeling we have to negotiate, we have to do something. Um, anyway, an amazing article, and, and I thought you guys might be interested in hearing about the connection that I sort of see with the uh, Red Army faction, how it's amazing the kind of blowback that comes with decisions like this, and but how hard it is to foresee that uh, when you make those decisions. So, well, that is it for today. Um, uh, I'm hoping, I, um, I did an interview with a gentleman who wrote a book about Ulrika Meinhof that just got released a couple days ago. Did an interview with him several months ago. Lost the interview, but I think I've tracked it down. So I'm going to hopefully post that shortly in the next couple days. And I encourage you to check it out. A really interesting guy, a real interesting interview. Um, anyway, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.